Hey, grab a Bible if you've got one, turn it to the book of Malachi. We are, thanks for that. I don't know who dropped that off for me. I'm sure I'll need it. It's the gunky season, right? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just me. Although, uh, you know, obviously we can tell that there's a good bit of stuff going around. My, my wife said that she had, she was out a couple days this week. My, she, uh, her, her classroom had five kids absent. You know, it's just what's going around. So I'm glad to have the water. Um, we are in our third week in uh, Malachi. I'm not going to introduce a, a ton into that because we've got so much to talk about this morning. So in, in lieu of that, instead of that, what I want to do this morning um, is just say one thing. We, we've just had Matt and Carly up here and, and talked about that. I, I want you, um, I, at some point, I would love Kent or some member of the missions committee just to come up and give a more thorough account of why they're, um, the, kind of the philosophy behind what they're doing. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out one of what I think is one of um, my favorite aspects of that. And that's simply this. At Holy Cross, what you're, what you're not going to see is um, a, even in our new facility, obviously you're not going to see it here because we don't have any wall space, but in the new facility, like a, a giant world map with a bazillion different pins on it with all of the different um, missionaries that we support. And now, as I say that, you're like, does that mean that we don't like missionaries? No, that's not it at all. What we'd rather do and what our missions uh, team is, is doing is supporting less missionaries with more. Why? I want you to imagine how much it must cost the chases to fly to Japan. How much? You bought the tickets, how much? 14,000. 14, okay. Let's put that into, into perspective. That is about a third of what we are supporting them at a year. And now we all go, oh. But what if, what if the chases, instead of coming home on, when they come on home assignment and they have to travel around to a bazillion churches, just had to just stick where they are and go to like two or three? How great would that be? That's what we want. That's what we want. Um, we want that for them. We want that for us. Uh, and so that's one of the, the, the things that our missions team is uh, looking at and, and using as their kind of thoughts as they go into things. And it's, it's just, I love it. I think it's great. I'm glad they're doing that. Hey, we've got a ton to, to get to. So let's go ahead and stand. If, if you've got your Bible open or your bulletin, it'll be behind me too. We're in Malachi chapter two. If I said chapter three, I'm sorry, but it's our third week, but we're in chapter two. I'll be reading verses 10 to 16. This is God's word. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Well, 
because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Uh, It's a hard text, Lord. For all of us, I think. I feel it. I feel it particularly this morning. And so I I just ask that you would um, soften our hearts. No matter where we're at this morning in our relationships, soften our hearts to hear from your word, to be changed by it, and to be faithful as you are faithful to be faithful because you have been faithful. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So what I want to do this morning is prepare us for this a little differently, right? Third week in Malachi, we've talked about all the stuff that has to do with Malachi, how this is a, this is a, a, a prophet speaking to a group of people um, in Judah who were, who were disappointed disappointed with God, probably disappointed with their, certainly disappointed with their circumstances because of the fact that they were promised certain things that would happen when God brought his people back from exile and those things haven't happened, at least not in their fullness, Uh, some of them at all. And so they're still waiting and they're disappointed. And as their disappointment with God has grown, it has led to certain things. The first being uh, doubt in his love for us and his love for them. Because it's the first thing that generally happens when we, when we find ourselves disappointed. We, go, we think, he hasn't really loved us. He's not really caring for us. He's not really faithful to his promises. And then last week, we, we looked at another thing that tends to happen. And that's kind of like half-hearted worship. Half-hearted because we go through the motions, but we don't really think that God really cares that much anyway. And so we go through the motions. And this is another thing that tends to happen What we're talking about today is something that is normally not discussed much in church. And when it is, it seems only to be done with a shame in a shame filled way. Like you heard the passage. I don't have to tell you what we're talking about. There's no real surprises, right? We're talking about divorce. We're talking about marrying outside the faith. And normally one of two things happens when I say those words. The first for some of us is a sense of shame because maybe that's where you're at. Maybe even you didn't want to be there, but that's where you're at. And there's a stigma attached to it. You feel that shame, you feel that stigma, and and you can't seem to shake it. To you, I would say simply this as we get into this, and and, and really as we recognize the fact that even in sometimes reading this, we get hijacked and can't focus, can't pay attention. So I would want you to hear this. God's word convicts, right? It does that shouldn't shy away from that. That is true. But the conviction that God's word brings is always meant to draw us closer to Jesus, not to push us away. I know that's weird because normally we think of conviction of, 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 of being confronted on something as something that normally is kind of makes distance, but that's not what this is meant to do. It's meant to draw us to Jesus, not push us away. The second response is anger, Right? Because you begin to argue, because this passage clearly does not apply to you. Your choices were totally justified. 
And to you, I would say, if that's the case, then there's no need to get angry. Relax, right? Relax. If your choices were totally justified, then God's not going to convict you of anything anyway, right? So why get angry? Let's just listen. Ultimately, this passage is about faithlessness. Faithlessness is something that God is not real big on. He's not big on faithlessness because he is faithful. (laughs) But then, when we're disappointed, that's what's difficult to believe, right? And so this is what we're going to see this morning. The doubt in God's faithfulness leads to our faithlessness, okay? And as always, there's an outline if you like that. Let's Let's jump in. So uh, I, I told you, I've told you this the last couple of weeks. We're going to keep saying it because these are things that we need to know as you're, you know, reading uh, Malachi or maybe in the future as you, you might read Malachi that this, this prophecy, if you want to call it that, when I say prophecy, it is a prophecy. When we think of prophecy, we think of fortune telling and that is not what this is. Okay. It's set up in a complaint format. And what I mean is God is bringing complaints to his people more like what prophecy actually is. And he's bringing complaints to his people um, throughout this time in things that they are doing that kind of violate his covenant with them, okay? And so this third complaint that we get to is actually two. Let's, let's begin. Let's look down at it. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, okay? Now, let me jump into this. One father, one God, <laughs> Remember that this is, this, the scriptures are written to God's people. And so when it says one father, what, what it is not talking about is the universal fatherhood of man or the uni- or, or universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Okay. Is God father in some creational sense? Yeah. But that's not generally when it calls God father, what we're talking about. God is his fatherhood is redemptive. It is a redemptive fatherhood. It is something that he um, is father to his people. And the same thing goes with what has one God created us. Has God created all things? Yes. Has God created all people? Yes. But in this context, what we're talking about is God creating his people. So why do we, why do we know that? Well, we know that because of the end of that verse. Faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers. We're not talking about God as creator of heaven and earth. We're talking about him as creator of a people. We're not talking about God as the father of all things, but the God of the father uh, as a father of his people. And what is being brought out in this is the we, is the us of this passage. There's a fundamental unity of God's people. And this kind of strikes at, as an aside, this kind of strikes at, some different ways of looking at the world that we see in different cultures today. Like the Western, the Western culture is still primarily an individualist culture. I know we're pushing against that, but primarily it's individualist. And what we mean by that is that the individual is king. And we know that, right? We feel that. We feel that the individual is king. And to some extent, the, um, the, the whole of society exists uh, to, to kind of guard and protect the rights of the individual, right? That's our mindset. Whereas in other cultures in the East, primarily, they're a collectivist culture, right? That's not the way it works. The individual exists for the sake of the collective, not vice versa. The collective is what matters, not so much the individual. And the Bible actually is neither of these. It's a covenantal culture. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that God does care about the individual. He does redeem the individual, but the individual is not redeemed unto themselves, but unto a people. It is a covenantal people. It is a, it is a group of people that exist both for one another and for the world. It's not focused just on their collective. It's not focused just on the individual. In fact, they're focused, supposed to be focused on the other outside of themselves. It's something a little unique. And what's being brought out here is the fact that what what he is about to complain about, the complaint that God has to his people, is something that strikes at this covenantal unity. It strikes at the we. It strikes at the us. It's not just, I have an issue with you. It's, I have an issue with you because of the way that you are doing this to everyone. With me? Okay. Now, let's get to the problem. Look down at verses 11 and 12. He says this. Judah's been faithless. Abomination's been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Now, talking about faithlessness, talking about an abomination, it's big words. We don't often use those words, right? But those are consistent words used when in the Old Testament, you're talking about something called uh, ceremonial, follow me, ceremonial uncleanness, Okay? To be ceremonially unclean is um, not necessarily sin. Okay? It's a different categories in the Old Testament. Sin is obviously something you do. It's something that violates God's law. But to be ceremonially unclean could be anything from something that happens to women every month to something that happens to dudes a lot to uh, touching dead bodies or dead animals, which you have to do to eat. You with me? Like ceremonial uncleanness is something that would happen all the time. So why? why? Why have this negative stigma attached to it? Well, you have to understand the way the law works. The law in the Old Testament is not just there to make us, um, to give us rules that we go, we love these rules, we want to try and keep these rules, but we can't keep them. It's also there to tell a story. And the law, especially in its ceremonial way, tells a story of our need Because even if you kept all the rules, even if you kept all the laws, you could not avoid ever, you could not avoid at some point in your life, and more often than not regularly, being unclean. So even if you kept everything perfectly, which you couldn't, but even if you did, you could never not be unclean. There would always be a time where you would be outside of God's uh, community with God's people and then be brought back in. Exile, return. Being away, being brought back near. And so this is talking about what it means to be the opposite of holy. And again, when I say holy, especially if you're church, you think in terms of moralism and morals. Your holy means you're perfect. And that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about being set apart, being different. And that is why, kids, especially if you're uh, either in college, about to go to college, or even in high school at this point. This is why you had laws in the Old Testament about things like, you can eat fish, but don't eat the ones without scales. And um, don't touch the animals that, have, uh, that chew the cud, but don't have split hooves. You can, ha- you can go with the ones that have split hooves, but chew the cud. But you can't go with the ones that don't have split hooves. And like, what is that about? They don't fit. Fish without scales don't fit. There's something weird that everything else is this way and they are somehow different than everything else. And that's the whole point. The whole point is being holy is to be set apart. 
to be holy for the Lord. And he says, you've profaned the sanctuary. Okay, that can mean sanctuary. But in this context, it's better to, be, to, it, to understand it in, in terms of the holy, because that's what it means. In other words, the holy of the Lord. And what this means is that what he's about to complain about has taken the holy, what God has set apart, and made it profane. Which is just to say, normal. It's taken it from being set apart for God for being like everything else. And what is it that, that did that? Marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, some of us, if you're familiar at all with this kind of concept, um, may have heard, may have even believed that this is somehow, some, especially because of the, the narratives in our culture right now, that this is primarily some kind of like issue with race, right? That God's kind of like a racist God. He likes Semites and everyone else not so much. This isn't, a, this isn't a racial thing at all. And we know that because you had this lady in the Old Testament. Her name was Ruth. You had another lady in the Old Testament. Her name was Rahab. They weren't Israelites. They became Israelites. In fact, they're part of the lineage of Jesus. So what is this about? This is talking about pursuing a relationship with someone who is not a part of God's people. Okay? What this is not talking about, because some of us in this room right now are already the same thing that goes on when I first said those words is happening again. What this is not talking about is someone who was not a Christian, okay, got married, became a Christian, and their spouse is not. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about, in, in our context, being a Christian and pursuing relationship, pursuing marriage is in particular, with someone who is not part of God's people. Okay? Rick, I don't like that. I'm sorry. I, I can like it. You don't have to like it. It's right here. So I'm just going to talk about it. Okay? And what he says is that there is a curse on those who do that and then bring an offering. What is that about? It's about this. It's about when you bring an offering, it's acting as if everything is normal. That you are just doing the normal thing instead of recognizing that you are not inadvertently betraying God. That happens, right? You and I do that all the time. Sometimes it's really inadvertent. Sometimes it's like on purpose. And sometimes it's habitual. In other words, we know it's wrong. We know we shouldn't be doing it, but we keep doing it. And then we come to the Lord and think, he's gonna just, everything's fine. I can do this. I can betray him and yet I can still have a relationship with him. I can betray him and I can still kind of grow in him. I can, I can intentionally and purposely go, he told me not to do this. I know he told me not to do this. I'm doing it anyway. But he loves me. He cares for me. He's going to do all the things. He's going to give me all the blessings that I, that I expect of him. Okay. God's going, ah, hmm, maybe not. Okay. Now, before we move off of this, I need to talk to single folks in the room. And I don't just mean single folks over 20. Okay. I mean teenagers too. So listen up. Especially the guys. Let me talk to the guys for a second. I've been doing this, this, this up here for the better part of two decades. Okay. You want to know what I've heard over and over from single Christian women? Guys, it's this. There aren't enough good Christian men. Others of you have heard that too. We've heard that. You want to know what they mean by that, guys? 
They mean guys who are seeking Jesus and taking responsibility in their lives. There are plenty of boys out there. Lots of them. I should probably stand away from God's word for this because this is one of my high horses, okay? There are lots of boys. There are lots of guys who just want to play. They want to play at life. They want to play at relationships. They want to play at their relationship with Jesus. They want to play with girls. They want to play with porn. They are not men. They are boys. Guys, you were not made for that. So these women end up dating and marrying guys who aren't Christian because those are the ones who are actually pursuing them instead of you. Now, that's the guys. Ladies, I know. I know your relationship's going to be different. He's going to come around eventually. I know you don't really have a choice, right? I know that. I get it. I know you think he's the only one who'll ever notice you or find you special, but listen to me. God's word is not trying to make you miserable, I promise you. It's trying to help you. It's trying to protect you. Don't lower your standards. I know you're afraid, but trust me, it will not be better than nothing. It won't be. Now, let's get to the second thing. Look down at verses 13 and 14. This is where it kind of hits the fan, right? So here's what's going on. Men are upset because the Lord doesn't seem to be receiving their prayers, receiving their offerings. Same thing we looked at in the first set. They're, they're, they're kind of doing all this because and they're not, he's not receiving their prayers and offerings while they, while they are blatantly defying what he has said. And so what we're talking about here is someone who is living two lives. In one of those lives, they are a faithful believer they show up at church on Sunday. They do their thing, raising their hands even. They're Presbyterian. Who knew? Like they're raising their hands. They're loving Jesus. They're, they're maybe even tears, tears. And then they walk out of this room. They walk out of church and they're living a completely other life. That's none of y'all. Don't worry. I'm sure it's none of it. Nobody in here. Because in that other life, they're doing whatever they want. And the whatever in this case is divorce. <laughs> okay faithlessness to covenant promises. Okay, what do we mean by that? I've said this before, I'm going to keep saying it because we need to understand it. There's a difference between a covenant and a contract. And in our culture, most of, a, most of our culture treats marriage like a contract. And what I mean by that is both sides have contingent, uh, under, have a contingent understanding. I will do this if you will do this. I will keep doing this so long as this is true. But if you keep, do, I will keep doing this, but if you do this, then I don't have to do that anymore. You're with me? That's a contract. A covenant is, I'm going to do this. And the other side says, I'm going to do this. They are unconditional, unilateral promises. Unconditional. In other words, it doesn't matter what the other person does. I'm going to do this. Unilateral. I make it, and it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what you promise. I'm going to do this. And there are promises. That's why in a marriage ceremony, we call them vows. A vow is not a suggestion. It's not a, when I feel like it. It's a promise. It's a promise. And so he says... 
The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faith, faithless, though she is your companion. Now, that word companion is interesting because in our, in our companion is like your buddy. It's someone who's with you. Uh, the, the original here, it, the Hebrew, actually talks about um, two things that are joined together. A companion, we, we think of companion as like lesser than a, than a spouse. We're like, uh, he's your companion. It's like someone you hang out with. This is talking about someone you are united to. You're joined to. In other words, there is a oneness there. Something has happened that takes those two and makes them into one. And you have been faithless towards, almost in a sense, towards yourself. And that brings us to the problem in these verses. Okay, verses 15 and 16. Now, I should tell you this. These verses are notoriously difficult to translate. Okay? Notoriously difficult. The Hebrew here is very hard. And that's why if you have um, maybe a different translation than I do and you, you came or, or you grew up with a different translation, right? Some of you all still got the these and thous in your head. That's fine. Uh, nothing wrong with that. As long as you understand what it's saying, that's fine. But it, it says something different. As a matter of fact, it'll say something very divergent. Um, so let me break this down and, and we'll get into it, okay? So maybe in those two verses, you notice the word one is thrown out a lot. There's been a lot of one language in this, in this passage. And that's because it's trying to get at something. It's trying to get it at the fact that we talk about the one being God. And then there's also this one, that companion being oneness and all this stuff. And that is because in the, in the scriptures, in the Bible, in fact, in the Christian faith, marriage is not for you. I mean, it's also for you. But one of the primary purposes of marriage is to tell a story. That's what Paul's getting at in Ephesians chapter 5 uh, that we didn't read this morning. But if we did, it would, it would, what, you can go back and read it later. That marriage is meant to tell a story of Jesus and his people, Christ and his church. It's meant to tell a story. It's meant to tell a story of the one God. And if the, the oneness that two people have in their marriage is somehow broken apart, then that somehow says something about this one God. The, therefore, you know, like a lot of times it's said at the end of a wedding ceremony, right? What God has joined together, let no one put asunder, which means to tear apart. And then he gives another reason. One has to do with this, this oneness, this one God making them one, and so you're tearing apart that. And then he says, but it's also about this godly offspring. Now, no one in this church, I mean, this church is so full of them that it's not even funny. Um, <coughs> uh, but there's something about that that we need to understand. In God's covenant, and by covenant, I mean his promise-bound relationship to make the world right. We need to understand there, is, there, there are two tracks in that, okay? We don't see them that way, and some of that's primarily because we've grown up in a, if you've grown up in church, you probably did not grow up in a church that talked about a covenant a lot. And so in that sense, you, you have one track in your mind and you think that's the track that it is. And that's the track in which at some point, generally after the age of 12, because I don't know, apparently that's the magic age. So after the age of 12, when you have some measure of self-reflection, you cling to the, you, you decide you want Jesus into your heart. Uh, and, and so you become a Christian, right? That's the one. And then there's celebration, baptism, all this, right? And so the family 
is seen as kind of uh, a nice little help to bring these little heathens into a place in which they are Christians. One day. But more often than not, really what we're doing is we're proclaiming the gospel so that anyone and everyone will come and become a Christian. And if the kids get in, that's great too because, you know, that, that's awesome. But we have to understand that in the scriptures, God's plan A for redemption is the family. It's the family. We don't anticipate that. We don't actually believe that that's going to happen. Trust me, if you're a parent in this room, I know that most of you are are terrified of the possibility and for many of you, you think is the likelihood that your kids are never going to love Jesus. Right? There's no nodding. I know you. Stop. I know this is the case because we don't believe that God is actually going to work through our family to see our kids come to know Jesus. But when he says godly offspring, when Paul is talking to, uh, to the Corinthians that Michael read earlier and he says, your kids... The child of at least one believer is holy. What he doesn't mean is rescued, saved. and He's talking about set apart for God. Your kids. Parents, you realize like if you're a Christian, your children have been set apart. for They're his kids. Not your kids. And so we raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's another way of saying we raise them in the gospel because we expect that they will believe it. That they will adopt it. If you have questions about that, you can talk to my wife and I later if you want to, because she'll tell you great stories of how, not how, like how awesome of parents we are, but how shocked at times we are. Because neither of us came from Christian homes, how shocked we are that our kids are just like, oh yeah, love Jesus, love him. I'm going to do a Bible study now. Like what? When I was your age, I was not doing Bible studies. Like, but it happens. Okay. Don't talk to us about it. Like, Surprise. That's why I would want you to talk to us, okay? Now, then we get to the verse that's kind of famous and yet really, really difficult. And here in this passage, translated completely wrong, okay? Uh, look down at, um, at verse 16. The ESV says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Traditionally and correctly, in fact, um, that verse is translated the one or God hates divorce. I know that's hard for us to hear. And I think that's part of why it's hard to hear is why the ESV decided to to go with a translation that if you were to talk to a bunch of Old Testament scholars is almost marginal. Because it's hard. And this is where the anger starts to come up, right? What do you mean God hates divorce? What about abuse? What about abandonment? What about adultery? You know what's funny about that? And I'm not downplaying any of those things, by the way. But you know what's funny about that? This is the same thing we do with a, another rather hot-button issue. Like we run to extremes to justify a practice that in the overwhelming majority of cases has nothing to do with those extremes. You don't believe me. Let me, let me tell you. Did you know that there is a website called DivorceNet? In fact, there is. DivorceNet.com. <sighs> on divorcenet.com, I looked it up this week. It gives the top seven reasons for divorce. Let me give you just the top five. Number one, and these are, these are reasons not someone else has given. These are reasons that divorcees have given. Number one, lack of commitment. 
It's another way of saying, I just don't want to anymore. Number two, we've grown apart. We've grown apart. It's hard when you grow apart. It happens. Number three, communication problems. Yep. Yep, communication problems happen. Number four, here's one that we would think of, affairs. Yep. Yep, that's a big one. Number five, money disagreements. Money disagreements. Yep, those happen too. Domestic abuse is number seven, by the way. So I, I, I want to I, I be sympathetic to the extremes, and some of us have been a part of those extremes, and so I wanna, we're going to talk about that in a second, but I also want to note that most of the time when we zealously guard the extremes, for some reason, everything else just kind of gets a pass and walks in on the coattails. The extremes are real. Jesus talks about the extremes. We'll get there. Now, saying that God hates divorce, here's what it doesn't say. It does not say God hates the divorcee. It doesn't say God hates you if you've been divorced. It's not what it says. But hear me, hear me, and, and this is true. There is never a time in which divorce is not, is not the result of sin. And maybe it wasn't yours. Maybe it was just like, I was there and all of a sudden, all this, yes, that happens. But someone's sin did it. Someone's, someone's uh, decision to not be faithful to their promises. It happens. It happens. It doesn't mean your sin necessarily, but someone's sin has broken that covenant. Now, some of you are thinking, like, I, I know some of us are thinking this because it's just what we hear all the time. Rick, isn't it wrong to stay in a loveless relationship? Wouldn't it be better, especially for our kids, if, if you know, they saw parents that loved each other? Well, <laughs> I think this gets, again, what we've said a few times, the difference between our culture and the Bible when it comes to the understanding of love. Because in our culture, the foundation, the very core of love is affection. And if affection fades, then everything else fades. But in the Bible, the foundation, the core of this concept of love is loyalty. And everything else grows out of that. So to say a loveless marriage is to say a marriage without loyalty, not a marriage without affection. Anyone who's been married in this room for any amount of time knows that affection waxes and wanes. It's something you have to work on. It's something you have to be committed to. It's not always there. Right? Loyalty is the issue. Others of you are thinking like, but I got married really young. I didn't know what I was getting into. Join the club. None of us knew what we were getting into. All of us thought it was going to be roses and rainbows all the time with minimal clothing. That's what we thought. That wasn't in my notes, by the way. Uh, none of us know what we're getting into. Another thing that some of you might be thinking, Rick, we're just clearly not compatible. Listen. I, I hear you. If marriage is supposed to be easy, if it's supposed to always be fun, if it's supposed to just be smooth sailing all the time, that is a great argument. We're just not compatible. The assumption being that there is someone out there with whom you are very compatible, so compatible that you will not have issues. There is someone like that. You, 
If you want to marry yourself, no, I take that back. You will still have issues with you. You will always have issues with you. I have issues with me. I, I, I have lots of issues with me. Why are we so incompatible with other people? Because they have stuff. They got junk. They have issues. You're going to deal with somebody's junk the rest of your life, folks. The question is who? Because there's no, there's no such thing as someone without junk, including you. Including you. Because someone else is dealing with your junk right now. What? Not me. I'm good and nice. And hard to live with. Yes. Okay. Now, listen, let me get back to this. Are there biblical reasons for divorce? Yes. I mentioned three of them. Abuse, abandonment, adultery. Yes, those are biblical reasons for divorce. They are extremes. And divorce is an extreme answer to extreme situations. Okay? And it is extreme because it is not what God intends. Now, let me, let me kind of drill this home a little bit. Okay? I know we're running up on time, but just bear with me. You know when Jesus taught his disciples about divorce? And his disciples came, or someone came to him, and they, they laid out this kind of role for marriage and, and, or divorce. And they're trying to find out, when, when is it okay to divorce? And it's not his disciples, it's the Pharisees. They're trying to catch him. And, and they do that because there's laws in the Old Testament for divorce. And the reason for those laws is to protect women, by the way. Because um, the more you make it difficult for men to divorce their wives, more often than not, not always, but more often than not, the less divorce you're going to have, um, and, and especially in the ancient world where the guys were the ones who had the land and the provision, the ability to provide for themselves. So you had divorce laws because, like Jesus said, of the hardness of their hearts, which is to say, you're going to betray God anyway. So I'm going to put laws in place to make it very, very difficult because some of you will not do it because of that. Others of you won't, but some of you won't. And, and Jesus says, like, like you, you just, you're married. Before God, you're married and you're, you're just married. And his disciples go, man, this is a hard teaching. If this is true, no one should get married. I mean, he, his disciples say that to him and he doesn't go, oh guys, you don't get it. It's not that hard. He's like, yep, yep, pretty much. That's how hard it is. And it is that hard. So how can we be faithful? Well, first we need to talk about a gospel-fueled marriage. Here's what I mean. Both of these issues that he talks about, deal with faithlessness. And, and the immediate way, it talks about being faithless to your promises, but interestingly, that is because of a, a deeper lack of faith, a lack of faith in Jesus. And as soon as I say that, some of us bristle, but follow me because it's probably not what you think. Let's start with the issue of marrying outside the faith. Most of us, most of us, at least intuitively, even if a preacher has never said that, even if you've never read it, most of us intuitively know that Uniting yourself to someone who believes something fundamentally different than you is probably not a good idea, right? Right? Like, we, we kind of get that. I mean, just thinking through the logistics is difficult. We know that it's going to cause conflicts in everything from raising our kids to how we approach our finances, even to sexuality in our marriages. And that's just the logistical issues. What about the fact that if you're, if you're a Christian, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that he's rescued you from sin, death, and hell, and you believe that, don't, that those who don't have faith in him 
are still liable for their sins and their betrayal of him. How do you engage emotionally in that? By choice. I'm not, ta- I'm not saying like, hey, if you're in that situation, like, I know uh, that's hard and I want to have tons of compassion. That's, that would be awful. I'm talking about people who choose to be in that situation. You would choose that? I'd love to have you talk to a few people, if you would, because I think they would tell you that's one of the hardest things they do day in and day out is waking up with those, that emotional thought. And that's on your side. How do you think your spouse engages emotionally with you? I mean, you hold to an outdated morality and believe that a dude died and came back to life and not as a zombie. In our world, that would be more likely, right? So why do it? More often than not, we get ourselves in that situation because we doubt that Jesus actually cares about us. That he certainly doesn't know how we feel and he won't provide for our needs and we feel lonely and we want someone to come in and fill up that space. We think our problem is that we need companionship. But it isn't. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not invalidating your feelings. That's what some of us here are thinking right now. You're thinking... Rick is in full jerk mode this morning and he is, he he just, Rick does not know how I feel. And you're right, I don't, um, I don't know how you feel. But do you actually believe that you won't be lonely anymore if you get married? Some of you are like, well, well, it would be better. No, I actually think it won't. It'll actually be worse because you'll feel lonely while having a spouse. You'd be sitting next to them on the couch or lying next to them in bed and still feeling lonely. And then you go, what the heck is wrong with me? Someone's sitting right there and I still feel unknown and alone. If you are willing to turn away from Jesus to get that feeling to be removed, it is a great sign that that feeling is not something that anyone else can provide for you. Because you are placing a burden on a spouse that they cannot bear. What you are looking for is something or someone to finally make you feel special, finally make you feel like you're enough, feel like you are desired, feel like you're wanted. And listen, the same is true for those of us when we are faithless towards our marriages. If you expect your spouse to fulfill all of your needs, you are placing a burden on their shoulders that will crush them. They are sinners just like you. They are broken just like you. They will fail to love you. They will fail to be kind. They will fail to respect you. They will be selfish and moody and mean and careless. There's a couple in this room been married two months. They're chuckling. They just learned this. More's coming. What you want is a perfect love. And of course you do. That's the love you were made for. You want someone who will love you unconditionally, who will bear with your sin, and someone whose love you will never lose. Do you see that what you're ultimately looking for is a reconciled relationship with God? Marriage can't bear the weight of your hopes because you weren't made for your spouse. And your spouse was not made for you. Jerry Maguire was wrong. You do not complete your spouse. You don't. You need to differentiate a little bit. You were made for God. You were made by him and for him. And because of that, you are only completed when you are reconciled to him. Remade in the image of Christ. 
when you place those hopes on someone else, it crushes them. And you continue to betray the God you were made for. But when you place your faith in Jesus, because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, you are restored to God. And this frees you to love your spouse instead of trying to suck the life out of them. It frees you to give something to them instead of trying always to get something from them. And it frees you to wait for God's best instead of taking things in your own hands. Because marriage can never fix your problem. Only Jesus can. Now, I want to finish with something practical. Again, I know I'm running up against time, but this is really important. If you're new to Holy Cross, we care very deeply about marriages. And I think the marriages in this congregation can testify to that. Okay? Um, But listen to me. That doesn't just happen. It's not like this is just, this is naturally what just, you just kind of go along in life and everything goes fine. No, it doesn't just happen. You can't have two sinners living in the same house and expect things are going to go smoothly all the time. Divorce doesn't just happen. It's not like you wake up one day and you're like, you know, I'm done. Now, some of us have experienced the other side of it where it's like, it seemed like that. But let me tell you how it normally happens. And I know this because, like I said, I've been doing this 20 years. I've walked with people through this. And here's the way it generally happens. It begins with disillusionment. Disillusionment. This isn't what I expected to be. She's not who I expected to be. He's not the man I thought he was. Life isn't what I expected to be. You wake up one day and you go, is this really? This, this, this is it? I dreamed all my life about this? Like, what, what is this? So disillusionment. Then it becomes dissatisfaction. Which has to do with blaming and, and, and focusing a lot on what is not right. What you're disillusioned about becomes what? I'm dissatisfied. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this person. I don't like this about them. How about that? I don't like this about them. And we can not like things about our spouses. We do. But I mean, I don't like this about them. And then that, that dissatisfaction turns into distance. I'm just going to, I'm just not even going to talk about it anymore. It's not worth talking about. We fight about it all the time. It's just not worth fighting about anymore. So I'm just not, I was disillusioned. It's not what I thought it was going to be. Became dissatisfied. This is, ugh, and distance. And then that distance turns into despair. And by despair, what I mean is like going, this will never change. He'll never change. Nothing is ever going to, it's just, this is the way it's always going to be can't get any better. And then one day that despair turns into dissolving. So there, because if you live in despair long enough, I guarantee you what you will convince yourself of is God does not want me to live like this. And you're right. He doesn't. You're just taking the wrong exit ramp. The answer is not dissolving. Okay. And this is how it normally happens, whether we are understanding what's happening or not. And so that means that until the final step, this can be helped. And again, all of this stems from the gospel, so stick with me. Here's some things. I'm just going to give you, how many are there? One, two, three, four, five. Trust me, it won't take that long. First, if you're married in this room, and if you're not married in this room, um, for whatever reason, maybe you're too young, or maybe something's happening, or maybe you just, you just, God's not called you to marriage. I just... Help listen in because you can help the other married folks in this room. First, stop being content with mediocre. 
If you're like, I mean, my marriage is okay. It could be worse, right? Yeah, it could be worse. It could also be better. Your marriage is meant to tell a story to the world of Christ and his church. Don't you think he wants it to be the best story it can be? So your first step is to just actually believe that things can be better. Second, stop hiding problems in your marriage. Listen, if the gospel is true, of course there are problems in your marriage. There's problems in my marriage. Of course there's problems in our marriages. There's no shame in that. If the gospel is true that we're more broken than we could possibly imagine, then of course there's problems. Of course there are places where you need change. And frankly, if you can't think of anything that you, uh, you'd like to see change in your marriage, note I said your marriage, not in your spouse, change in your marriage, then you might already be partway down that path, frankly. You've gotten used to the distance. But can I tell you, you don't need to hide these problems, whether they're emotional, sexual, issues with closeness, intimacy, whatever. If you need help, great. But stop lying and saying and believing that you guys have arrived and that your marriage is awesome. You can have a good marriage. I have a good marriage. I'm not ashamed to say that. I have a good marriage. Doesn't mean it doesn't need work. Third, can you, can you just pray for your marriage? And here's something, kids that are still in the room. Can you pray for your parents' marriage? Pray for it. They need it. We need it. Having a thriving marriage is not easy. It is a work of the spirit. So seek him on it. Depend on him. You were made to, okay? Next, almost done. Keep being curious. If you've ever come in to talk to me about your marriage, you've sat on my couch, you've heard me say this, okay? It's kind of my thing. I talk about it all the time. Because when you begin to assume that you know or understand why your spouse is doing something, why they said something, why they're acting a certain way, you are losing You're losing because you wake up every day next to a different person because you and I change constantly, constantly. You are not God. You don't know them through and through. You know a lot about them. You may have been with them for a long time. That does not mean you know everything about them all the time. Show some curiosity. You don't have to completely understand them. Ask, seek to know them. And then lastly, lastly, lastly. And notice, notice what I'm not saying. I have not said the two words yet. And I'm not going to. You know what those two words are? Date, night. Not said it. Do that, but that's not what this is. These are attitudinal changes, okay? Something bigger than date, night. Which can be good. It can just be a, an excuse to go out to eat once a week or once a month or whatever. Lastly. Ask the Lord to empower you to love without expectation. What do I mean by that? Try to outlove your spouse. Try to outlove them. And I don't mean try to do for them what you would want. I mean do for them, love them in the way that they would want. Outlove them. Because I've said this, I'm going to say it again. Look at me. You are hard to live with. You are very hard to live with. And even if, even if, because some of you are like, no, I'm not. I defer everything. That is maddening. (laughs) 
Where do you want to go tonight, honey? Oh, wherever you want to go. What, do you, what movie do you want to watch? Oh, whatever movie you want to watch. What kind of music you like? Whatever music you like. They could turn into a Stepford Bride. Like, what is this? It's terrible. It's maddening, okay? It's maddening. Jesus has given you everything so that you don't have to have anything from your spouse. And that frees you to love without fear. Marriage is a gift from God. But listen to me, that gift is not like so that you are fulfilled. It is a path of discipleship. God put you in a relationship, joined you with another person because he thought this person really needs to live with another sinner so that they become more like Jesus. It is a path of discipleship. You see, it's when that gets turned around, when we stop seeing Jesus as our source of life and start wanting our spouse to fill something they were never made to that the problems start to spring up. Which is why doubt in God's faithfulness, doubt in his faithfulness to us, to restore us, to give us what we need, to constantly love and care for us, that it's doubt in his faithfulness that leads to our faithlessness. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, it is a terrible thing that we couldn't spend more time up here talking about this. Because I know, I know, Lord, I know that there are some here who uh, have experienced divorce but didn't want to. Who were on the side uh, where um, they were betrayed, they were turned away from. And we couldn't speak to that as much as we wanted to or as much as I wanted to as much because we just don't have the time to say everything. And so, Lord, I just ask you'd be near to them this morning. Be yourself um, not only a father, but a caregiver, one who meets their needs. And in this season, Lord, be, uh, be close to all of us in this room, whether married or not, that we would become faithful Not perfect, just faithful. And that our trust in you, Jesus, would be the source from which our ability to love comes. Because if it doesn't come from there, it's not love at all. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen.